This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Patrick DeWitt. I mean, we've all read Sisters Brothers. We've all read French Exit. Lots of us have also read Evolutions. And I have to look at the book while I say this, Under Major Domo Minor, because dude, that is a title. And we yeah. may actually get to that book too, but The Librarianist is his new book. And just before I hit record, we were talking a little bit about Bob Comment, who's a really great character. And Patrick, I'm going to ask you to introduce Bob to listeners because I just, I'm so fond of this dude. I'm so fond of this character. Yeah, thank you so much, Mua. Bob Comet is a quiet and sort of introspective man. At the beginning of the book, we see him as a retired librarian, sort of casting around for something to do through the course of the book. And as he makes friends at a local senior center, he, he comes to bring literature to the people at the center. And this doesn't necessarily go well, but he sticks around, <laughs> makes some friends. And in the course of getting to know these people, they get to know Bob and the reader also gets to know about Bob's history. So um, there's flashback to his childhood. There's also a flashback to his early mid-20s when he was becoming a librarian. And then also the story of his sort of one stab at romance and also his other stab at camaraderie with a man. This sort of triangulated relationship goes well until it doesn't. And it all adds up to basically just the story of one man's life. And he's quite, as we were saying before, sort of stoic and quiet for one of my characters. But of course, mm-hmm. the world around him is fairly frantic and animated. So he serves as something of a straight man. He is a straight man, but he's also, I just, I felt like reading The Librarianist, things were a little more mellow. And granted, I had just done a massive reread of all of the earlier books. And yeah. so in comparison, this is kind of a quiet lovely book. And obviously we're going to stay away from spoilers because the book has just come out. Yeah, I really liked this dude. And I wasn't entirely sure what to expect. I mean, there is Ethan, the chaos machine. Right. There is Cindy. I mean, there's part love story, right? There's a little bit of an odyssey story that happens in the flashback. I mean, there's, there's stuff that I think of when I think of you and your novels, there are elements that I recognize from earlier books. But it it is something of a departure for me. I think it is I think more overtly melancholic. I think that it's just sort of quieter and, mm-hmm. and it's a more still piece than, than some of the earlier works. This probably is just a natural occurrence, but I think that this mood was probably exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah. And just life during that period of time for all of us was fairly complex. And I think I was a little bit subdued or blue during the making mm-hmm. of this book. And that's just reflected in the tone of the, of the story. Yeah, I was going to ask if it was your pandemic novel, because it also took a little bit longer. Than, yeah. There, there, it, it's a much longer period between French Exit and this novel than it, it seemed to have been like two to three years sort of between each of the earlier books. Am I getting that right? Yeah, this one took like three and a half years from start to finish. And it was really complicated. And I lost some work in the beginning through a computer error. And I couldn't really get a grip on the character Rob Comet in an earlier draft was a much more sort of traditional character for me and that he was a bit of a wild man. And Bonnie, his wife, ex-wife, was the protagonist and she was the librarian. And oh. uh, so I, 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 it took me longer to French exit in contrast. I sort of sat down and wrote three or four pages and those wound up being the first three or four pages of the book, which isn't necessarily the norm, but I, I don't struggle in the typically in the way that I struggled with this book. And I wound up overwriting it or just writing far more than is the norm for me. It sort of 
twice the length of what's published now. The oh, first wow. So it's not lost time. That it, The fact that it took this much longer doesn't really bother me because I was working through that. I don't know. Some are just harder than others. It seems to be easy, hard, easy, hard is the sort of, so the next one will be easy, theoretically, one hopes. But, but yeah, you know, it being, it's, it's not about the pandemic, but it's just about the frame of mind that I think I was living in during that, that phase of, of my life. When you say the book was complicated to write, though, I mean, you're just talking about structural ideas and because, I mean, the dialogue feels very Patrick DeWitt to me. Again, there's stuff that I recognize and I'm I'm dancing around obvious plot points, but there's just some lovely, lovely stuff in this book. And I'm like, really? I'm, okay, so you threw out, again, like half the length. I mean, it sounds like it was double the length from what you just said. A bit, a bit less than double, but, you know, a few hundred pages, a couple of few hundred pages. And it was just more or less the book that you see now, but just more of it, you know? Okay. And I printed it out and recognized that there was a book in a, mm-hmm. a book in there that I would be proud of, but I was just not nearly there. Typically when I print out a first draft, I'm closer than I was with this one. So that was, you know, a year's worth of quite brutal and gory edits and rewrites. And I have to say too, when I first saw Bob's name, I started to laugh because, you know, obviously we have Eli and Charlie sisters and yeah. we have Lucy Minor. And we yeah. have Francis Price, and now we've got Bob Comment. Yeah, and I yeah. just, I love that last name. I just think it is so smart. But can we talk about the creation of Bob for a second? It seems on the surface that he's going to be this very pedestrian kind of guy. Yeah. And yet, he really is a comet. I'm sorry, I had to go there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, things happen around him, and, mm-hmm. you know, the emotion related to the occurrences of his life travel through him in the same way it does for all of us. I think he's just more subdued in terms of his reaction. And he's not, okay. an, alpha. He's not an alpha character in the way that right. say, Ethan, his friend, sort of barrels through life and takes what he wants. And Bob is much more observant. And I can relate to both of those characters, but I, I think I skew a little bit more Bob than, than Ethan. And the character of a librarian was something that has been percolating for a while. Or also just somebody who 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 lives his or her life with books as you know books yeah. have been for so many of us you know like that's like the constant companion and so what is it like to sort of live your life through the books you read I also wanted to show a character who you know I, I have a great admiration for booksellers and for librarians obviously and I think mm-hmm. that it's really, for the people who really inhabit that role I think it's a very special vocation. And I just admire people who devote their lives to the perpetuation of literature. It's something that's mm-hmm. critical in my life. So it's sort of a doffing of my cap to people who mm-hmm. do that. But yeah, the character of Bob in terms of his relative simplicity or you know his placid point of view, I had the sense of, I don't know if growth is the right word, but it is a different kind of book for me. And that was exciting rather than mm-hmm. frightening. You know, and, and and showing less and giving less and, and leaving more for the reader to sort of chew on and consider. Um, not that it's, you know, I'm still there in the in, in, in the way that I, you know, in terms of being like yeah. a, a shepherding the reader through the, the, the universe of the book. But I think I've taken a step back um, in a way, you know. So I think that there's just more space for the reader in this book, mm-hmm. which is exciting for me. It felt a little less frantic. I know you talk about all of the things that sort of happen around Bob and his life, but 
it's sort of a mellower book. Even though there's so much of you and and the voice that I'm used to when I think of your work, a joy to read, don't misunderstand me, but it was really mellow compared to earlier stuff. And a little less frantic is the word that I keep coming back to, like, because I love that energy of the novels and and that constant sort of, you know, because we have to get to the plot thing, (laughs) the whole voice story plot thing, which we will come to. But I love the idea that so much happens in each of your books and you can sort of, you know, put your hands over your eyes and go, Oh no, dude. Oh, okay. And that's half the fun. And yet Bob, I was just kind of like, huh, huh. (laughs) Who are you, dude? Like what is going on? And as he's sort of making friends and sort of working his way through the world and all of that ground that he's covering, you know, what is love? What does this mean? Do I know what love is? You know, he's a little prickly, but this is a really charming novel. Thank you. Thank you. But can we talk about influences for a second? Because as I'm noodling through prepping for the show, you know, names pop. And I think it's also because you you clearly have different influences for each of the novels, right? But yeah. I ended up buying a Barbara Pym because of you and Ivy Compton Burnett because of you. I just bought them the other day. I'm waiting for the packages to show up. But like the the mid-century British lady writers, yeah. comedy of manners. I mean. I don't know where my copy of Jane Bowles is, uh, obviously American, but anyway, there's some stuff. I, I need to talk to you about some reference points because this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to sum up the influences for this book because most books do have sort of specific influences. And so much time elapsed in terms of the creation of this book. And my reading was fairly wide reaching or wide ranging during the writing. The influences are less specific, I think, for this one than for the earlier books, but some that I have been coming back to in my mind. Somebody brought up the book Stoner by John Williams. Yeah. I think that that is largely absent, the humor that is sort of evident in, in, in this book, but there is some sort of sameness there to me, and that is just sort of a long-form dissection of an introvert, right? And what life is like for somebody who who, who lives within himself or herself. So there's that. I, I, I was thinking of Jane Bowles, actually, because I always think of Jane Bowles, especially... Right third section with the the runaway like the two mm-hmm. women yep he falls the character bob comet as an 11 year old in the middle 1940s falls in he runs away from home and he falls in with a sort of troop of i don't know what to call them avant-garde pacifist playwrights with dancing that works. Dogs. anyway <laughs> you know a couple of characters and both of those women to me are reminiscent of something having to do with jane bowles just her general spirit or her sort mm-hmm. of art and brilliant take on life during her time. And then lastly, I thought of a book called Stop Time, which was a memoir written by a man named Frank Conroy, which especially his his childhood recollections of his complicated family life. It's just a very special book that stayed with me. I read it you know, several years ago, but it's sort of there. But as I say, the influences, I think oftentimes with the earlier books, you can sort of go one-to-one where it's like, oh, this section was influenced by this book. And I like doing that. I like specific homage. But I think that this book is more sort of just, I think the jumping off point for me was just that this book was wanted to be and was going to be a little bit more melancholic and placid and austere, I suppose, than the earlier books. So I just sort of got out of the way as much as I could and let that happen. Yeah, one of the things I like hearing you say that too, that it's, you know, austere and I got out of the way. I mean, You've talked about how Sisters Brothers started for you. And you were like, well, you know, I had some vague dialogue. 
Yeah. And then Eli got my attention and then Charlie got my attention and then the world got my attention. And then you basically just flew through and wrote it. Reading The Librarianist just feels so different and actually quite a lot more interior than I think any of the earlier books, even Ablutions, which obviously is told in the second person. It's the only time you've done that. And there's that intimacy to using the second person, which I love. I mean, it's a device that I love and I don't think it would have worked for the other books, but there, there is an intimacy to the librarianist that I think it's not that it's missing from the other books. It's just, it's present here in a way that it is not present in the earlier books. And I'm wondering if that just, again, is an outcropping of you know, sort of what you're, where you were when you started to sit down to write it. I think that with a character like Bob, if you give him time to get under your skin and if you live with him for a while, he does become quite vivid. He did for me anyway, and ideally he will also for the reader. It's funny though, Miwa, because that entire book was written in first person. I submitted it in first person. And it was being edited in first person. And I was speaking with my U.S. editor, Helen, about something had been bothering me or any number of things had been bothering me. That Writing a book, there's always things that are bothering you. But something had continued to nag at me. And it occurred to me that Bob wouldn't speak this much. He wouldn't share mm-hmm. this much. He wouldn't say as much as w- what is considered in the book. And so I rewrote the entire book in third person. And yet... So I, my concern was that it would become less personal, less about Bob, and yet somehow, some way, it either maintained its proximity to Bob or the interiority you're discussing, and maybe sort of made it more so. Odd thing, you know, it's such a funny thing, like uh, the point of view, the second person voice of ablutions, um, that was written in first, first, and then third, second. Yeah, okay. Something that was missing from each one. Yeah. But the notes I had been writing to myself when I was working at that bar, I always addressed myself as you. I was leaving notes for myself so I wouldn't forget. And I would say, you did this, you did that. And why were the notes so compelling when the text, when I transferred it to first or third? I mean, this is just sort of dorky and we're, we're, we're sort of discussing craft in a way that maybe will be dull for some people, but there is some kind of a magical occurrence when you really finally find the voice and the book becomes itself. It's just so exciting. And so something about changing the first person mm-hmm. voice to the third person voice solidified the book for me. And it made Bob that much more three-dimensional. Yeah, I think it really is, you know, it comes back to this idea of you know it when you see it or you know it when you hear it. And yeah. I mean, there are just times with, and I've been a bookseller for a really long time, but there are times where you pick something up and you just don't connect with whatever it is. And yeah. sometimes it's character, but if the voice isn't there for me, yeah. I have a very hard time. And I don't need to like characters. Right. I don't care necessarily if stuff happens. It's a bonus if it does. But like sometimes I just want to hang out, you know. But if the voice isn't there, I'm gone. That yeah. is the thing I cannot like again. And I don't care if I like the person. I don't necessarily care if stuff happens or not. But if there's no narrative voice yeah. to the thing as it, as itself, I can't do it. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with you. I, I, I really agree. And I've likened it in the past to socializing. You know, you meet somebody and there's mm-hmm. just the frequencies on a line or they're talking about things you don't care about or their their point of view is alien to you in some way and you can't relate. It's just the same thing with, with literature for me. I can't tell you how many times I've picked up a book that I've been told I would love and there's just nothing there for me. 
And it's nothing, it's not even really a critique of the author. It's just sort of, sometimes we just pass one another by and the frequencies don't align. But it is a bit of work to get the frequency to align with oneself. Like as an author, are you presenting yourself to the fullest? Are you allowing the characters to be themselves to their fullest extent? But it involves a lot of casting around. And as you say, listening, that's really the word is listening for the book. So for you, you, it's language then, right? You see it. Yeah, yeah. You're living with it as a document and you right. review it every day. But so much of the work is, you know, you're reading the work in the way that a mm-hmm. reader is. And so it's suddenly something will just, you know, it will sort of illuminate. And then it's just a question of fleshing that feeling out to its fullest potential or conclusion. Which you can't do without language. <laughs> Sorry, I keep I keep folding back on language because one, your dialogue is great. It's a very tight cast, this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sort of think of it really as Bob and Connie and Ethan and then the two ladies that we meet later. I mean, there are, don't misunderstand me, there are other characters who roll in and out, but they're sort of, that cast of five is sort of the soul of the thing for me, at least in my reading experience. And, you know, he meets people later who are just (laughs) Linus and Maria. I mean, they're great. They're really, they're wonderful characters, but. They're more walk-ons, it's true. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the people who really made Bob, the Bob that we meet in this book are those four that I just mentioned. Are you starting with language? Are you starting with the character? Or can you not separate the two? Because I know voice is the thing for you. I mean, you've you've said yeah. this multiple times in other interviews that voice is always the thing you come back to, but you have to start somewhere. You have to build a voice out of something, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just a question of trial and error. I'm doing it right mm-hmm. now, actually. I mean, I took a day off today, but I'm in a phase right now where I'm trying to start a new book. I know what the story of the book is. I know what I want to accomplish emotionally. I know where the book will take place. I know these all these things about it, but I don't know who the protagonist is. And I don't know if it's going to be first or second or third person. These are all okay. the questions that are sort of bothering me or I'm addressing now. I was feeling disheartened earlier in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because I wasn't becoming any clearer as the days were going by. And I sometimes there's the sense of, okay, there is no character here. And so you jettison whatever you've got and you either approach it from a different angle, as I did with, you know, the earlier iterations of the Bob comic story, or you just throw it away and you start over. I've got other ideas. Write, try to write another book. You know, I'm, I'm going to listen to myself more now or listen to the work more now. It's really an uphill battle. For, I'm going to jettison the work quicker. I'm glad I didn't with this book and I'm very proud of this book. And I, I, I'm so pleased with how it turned out. But at the same time, there's so many stories to be told and you have to sort of get on with it, right? So to me, three and a half, four years is a little bit long for me to to go in books. And the earlier sort of two years between each one made more sense to me. So as I say, I'm going through this situation now of trying to figure out who this character is. It's getting closer. Oftentimes you'll learn who a character is through his conversations or her conversations with other people. So I've person up with his father he's visiting his father he hasn't seen him in a couple of years and things are getting really exciting to me i'm getting closer i can sense it i'm not there yet at all and if i showed it to you you would just think it was really vague and boring because it's nowhere near there yet but as i see this person and again it's very much like socializing you see somebody interact with other people and you learn who they are by the way they listen and what they don't say and their response to an insult or a provocation or a compliment or whatever so i'm just you spend time with these people and they either become whole or they don't and when they don't you throw them away 
It's true, though. There are so many, so many variations on stories that you can tell. You've said that writing Sisters Brothers changed you as a writer. The difference between, you know, the experience of writing Ablutions, which, you know, you're doing in kind of a void. There's this legendary story that you pass a copy off to D.V. DeVincentis, and he's like, huh, I guess I will read this because it is pretty great. Then you have all of the success of Sisters Brothers. It's shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Yeah. And while I'm reading the coverage of Under Major Doma Minor, you're referencing a book, a novel that you're working on about an investment banker who flees to France because he doesn't yeah. want to go to jail. And I'm like, well, there's the seed of French exit, yeah. but clearly that is not the book. So is that the process you're talking about? It's like, I just couldn't get it. I didn't care. I was bored. I just, it didn't work. And then I, you know, I put it on the shelf kind of thing. Yeah, I had high hopes for that book. And I actually sort of a lot of time and, and energy and got a residency apartment in Paris, moved my family to Paris. And I got there and I said, all right, you know, cracking my knuckles and rolling up my sleeves and here we go. And then every day was just sort of a flat line. So I decided and I started writing under major domo minor, which was much more cooperative and enjoyable for me. And then the book after that became French exit and it sounds odd or false or something, but the truth is that I didn't recognize that there was a connection between French Exit and the aborted investment banker novel until either the midpoint of French Exit or maybe when it's been finished. And they're not the same book, but it's the same world and it's the same. My intention was more or less the same. I devoted French Exit to what would have been the auxiliary characters in the earlier book, which is going to focus on the man. And this man has now been, he's sort of dead or not dead. He's living in. (laughs) And he has a sort of cameo in what was going to be Mm -hmm. his story. But he wound up being a character that wasn't particularly interesting as compared to his wife and son. You amble sort of through this party of people and you stick to the ones that are amenable to telling their story. and, And also you're looking for the ones that have a story to tell that's engaging for me as a reader. And then you flesh it out and share it with the world. Does each book change you as you write them? I mean, you've already alluded to the how the librarianist has changed, sort of changed you and has put you in a different space when you're working. But I'm yeah. just wondering about the other books, too. It's hard to start a book. And I, you hear about this, like an actor will immerse himself or herself in a role and then they can't just turn it off and go home. And then it bleeds into you know subsequent roles or it can. I think when you spend three and a half years looking at the life of one person, it's hard to move on emotionally. And then when you try to tell somebody else's story with the next book, it doesn't really make sense emotionally. Why, you know, you're still halfway in this other world. And now I'm just beginning to discuss the librarianist and discuss Bob Comet. And there's this phenomenon of not knowing, you know, I haven't verbalized, these questions are new to me. And by the end of the tour, you know all the answers to the questions. But in the beginning of the tour, you just don't really know. And so I'm sort of casting around for how do I feel about this or that? Or how did I come to write this? And you figure it out as you go. But all this to say, the process of having a book come out does not lend itself to the writing of the next book, right? And it's a quality problem. and I'm not really complaining. I'm just saying it's, uh, it's hard to focus on Project B when you're still halfway uh, living in the world of Project A. I'm talking about balance, too. I'm going to flip it for just a tiny bit. Balancing the humor with the melancholy yeah, and not letting the work suddenly get a little slapsticky, which 
you know, it's you have a restraint to your humor. It makes me think of Lori Moore a bit where it's just I know that the dialogue is going to snap. I know I'm going to learn all sorts of great stuff about these characters or wild stuff or whatever. I mean, and I'm just kind of laughing, thinking about Ethan, the chaos monster, and he ends up in Acapulco. And that's all I'm going to say there. But I mean, I was howling when he came back and it's just like, of course, only Ethan could have. And here's Bob sort of responding to this very wild story as only Bob can respond to his friend. But that could have blown up in a way. I mean, I could see how easy it would be to let that sort of continue, right? And instead, you keep winding it back in, in unexpected ways. And I'm wondering for you as the writer, if that is like a fully conscious thing, or again, if you're just listening to what's there and just paying attention to what you're hearing from your characters, or if you're just like, I can't go as far as I want to go. Well, this is what the first draft is for, you know? And then you look at it and, okay, I've gone way too far. I mean, that's sort of the editing for me is that that balance hasn't been mastered yet or met yet. And I think that this the balance of this book or the taste of this book is than the earlier books, and that I think that the melancholic is a little bit heavier. I don't know, again, if that's just how I'm going to work now or this is the register that i feel comfortable in now or this is just a document of the time i am feeling as I'm, you know most of us are i'm feeling sort of more optimistic than i was say two years ago three years ago i mean there's lots to worry about and the world is still like a troubling sickening uh vulgar place <laughs> <laughs> but in a day-to-day way i feel cheerier which is happy news for me but i you know what will it do to the book if anything the measuring outcomes it occurs in real time when you're writing the pages in rough draft, but it really happens later. There's no language even in my mind that I use. It's just typically it's like long comedic conversations can be cut in half in my experience. But I could go on forever and I enjoy going on forever. And that's why this book was so much longer than the published version, because if you get a couple or three or four, you know, semi lunatic characters to discuss the gibberish. <laughs> and garbage goes up their brains it's fun it's entertaining for me yeah but then yeah it comes down to what's best for the book and and the question is um and this is also obviously where the editorial process with working with you know your editor comes in and will sort of say this is a bit much can we trim this down and it's a seemingly vague directive but they're talking about that measurement they're talking about that the taste the overall taste and if when a maudlin scene goes on for a little bit too long or a comical scene goes on for a little bit too long, it can spoil the entire document or it can mar it, you know? So at a certain point, a feeling takes hold, which is that you want the best, not just for the characters, but you want the best for the book. And you recognize that it, it, it is one thing in the way that a film is one thing. It's not a, because it can feel very scattered. You know, there's so many scenes and points of view and, and chapters and eras. And so it seems like something that is much more wide ranging and sort of open-ended. But as you get closer to completing the book, you recognize it as a, as a solitary piece of work. You just try to make it sort of the most, the cleanest and most gleaming and presentable uh, version that it can be. But in terms of the evolution of your work too, I mean, you've been playing with genre and I'm certainly not the first person to point that out. But one of the things that I love is that you're just using whatever elements 
you know, yeah, Sisters Brothers is a Western, but it's also a road trip kind of novel. Yeah. And then you've got the gothic and the fairy tales and the love story of Under Major Domo Minor. Ablutions really kind of is its own thing. I, I quite liked it, but it is very much its own sort of, yeah. I suppose you could argue it's, you know, straight up hero's journey kind of thing, only it's an anti-hero. Yeah. And then French Exit, Comedy of Manners. Yeah. But there's also a little bit of Comedy of Manners happening in Under Domo. Then we've got The Librarianist, which is more sort of a classic coming of age. Yeah, it feels more traditional. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Proper big boy novels that I've written. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it feels. I mean, I really. Okay, feel- <laughs> you said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, but I wasn't aiming for that. But at a certain point, I recognized that I was addressing things that I had read in another kind of book, which isn't even necessarily kind of book that I read anymore. But, you know, Herzog or, you know, what books I'm referencing. And I wasn't thinking of them per se, but it it seems much more traditional in in some way. Sort of like, you know, the full scope of one person's life from start to end go, you know. Yeah, there's a little bit of a John Updike swing to it. I was Which thinking that. I, those aren't my guys. I don't, I don't yeah. even. No offense. I mean, uh, you know. I didn't think to, they were. <laughs> it's almost like a sort of mishmash of that middle 50s, uh, you know, Commonwealth, t- typically female writers, sort of imposed onto this other sort of traditional American uh, storytelling architecture. I'm casting around to make sense of it, and there, I can't really because it's the works are mysterious to to the makers, I think, in some way, and that's as it should be. But it seems to be that there's like a confluence of uh, inspirations for this one. There's a little Anita Bruckner feel to it. I haven't read Anita Bruckner, but that's on the that's on the list of why well, haven't I read? You know, I gotta get gotta get to it. There's too many to get. To, that's somebody I will surely get to. I think we all have those lists. I mean, I sort of laugh at what's on my list. Still, I, I, I keep attempting Middlemarch and I keep failing. <laughs> like, you know, at some point I'm just going to have to give up. Yeah. I'm just going to well, have to give up. I've never read Middlemarch and I'm, I've been told so many times that it's sickening that I haven't read it and that I would love it. And I, I'm sure that that's true. But, you know, hours in the day, right? Yeah. I even just bought a new copy with French flaps. And when I say just buy, this is like six months ago. I was like, well, if I buy a prettier copy, maybe I'll no. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, and it's, it's not happening. So you are not alone. <laughs> away though, too, and admitting defeat or whatever you're admitting when you turn away from a book. I used to, when I was younger, struggle through books and tell myself it was for the greater good and that I had to do my homework more or less. But whenever I get that homework feel now, I just leave because I don't like, I didn't like homework in school and I don't like it now. And I don't believe that it's necessary. I think that reading should be for pleasure. We started poured over a couple of years ago at this point. And in the last sort of few weeks, now that I've had some time to think about it, I should have started independent studies sooner. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, and I had a perfectly fine time in school and did quite well and all of this other stuff, but I just, the way that I get to approach each episode of the show is just kind of like mini independent study for every single episode. And I'm like, oh, this is fun because I just get to find the spine of the thing and think, huh, all right, let's see where this goes. Let's see what we can uncover. I'm like, yeah, I should have done this a lot. I should have gone to one of those colleges where you sort of design your own curriculum. Yeah. 
Well, that was my, that was how I came to read the people that I read is that I, I didn't go to college and, and I, went to, I went to the library. And so there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of reading books that I knew that I was supposed to read. And some of them delivered on their promise and some didn't. But casting around on your own, I think, is, is, is a special thing. And being lost and like finding your way and finding your people, your authors, it's been critical to my writing because it is such a sort of labyrinth, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there were so many times where I was lost to the point where I wasn't necessarily loving reading. And then you back and then you backtrack and okay, where have I made my mistake? Okay. I want to read about, you know, whatever that was not that interesting for you. And you move on towards the things that move you. The good news is, I will never get anywhere near reading the, all the books that are for me. I could live a hundred years and I'll, I'll never get, it's endless. You know, it's an, it's an endless supply of excellent artworks for us to ingest. So. It's totally true. Your dad turned you on to the beats though, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. That was something that was big for him. Um, it's funny cause I was just writing a, a response to an email interview and I was asked what books worked for me as a youth, which don't work for me now. Yeah. And I did. And I think in a lot of the, a lot of people who read the beats, certain of the beats anyway, in their youth, return to it later, and it's sort of like, I don't know, dude. <laughs> it doesn't really um, resonate with me so much anymore. But there's an energy to it that was really infectious to me as a young writer. And they, I mean, it seems sort of slapdash to me now, some of it, but it seemed free in a way that was really uh, intoxicating. And it and it was, and it is, you know. I mean, that's the Function, its function is to to represent, you know, yeah. um, a wildlife story told in a wild, with wild language. And time passes and it doesn't make sense anymore to me aesthetically. You know, it's not what I'm looking for. Yeah, I tried to reread Henry Miller, Tropic of oh, Cancer wow. as an adult. Oh, dude, do not. Do not. That oh. is meant to be read when you are 18. Yeah, yeah, figuring yeah. out that is just not one of those books that you carry over. And I remember reading it, you know, obviously my freshman year in college and thinking, wow, like, wow. what?" And then, oh, no, no. <laughs> like Bukowski, I can't do Bukowski anymore. I have this beautiful edition of Love is a Dog from Hell, you know, one of those Black Sparrow Press editions. And I keep it because it's pretty, but like, oh, yeah. I mean, I can't. There's a lot of stuff where I'm like, no, can't do yeah. that. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense anymore. You know, um, I bought a, I hadn't read Miller's since high school or something mm-hmm. like that. I, I had a similar experience of just loving it and loving its wildness and its vulgarity and everything. Right. And I found this uh, book of sort of like a picture book, you know, it's pictures of him playing ping pong with like a woman with no clothes on and he's an old <laughs> man living in wherever he's, Big Sur or wherever. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I like Henry Miller. I'll get this book. And it was right. cheap. Brought it home. And then there's these interviews and he just, he's just a repellent. Yes, exactly. You know, woman hating monster. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know how this <laughs> made sense to me before, but really hard to get through now. So uh, I think we're on the same page. Some of these things make sense. And also, I mean, also societally, we've just changed and things that were seemed edgy before or whatever, however they seem now just seem kind of plainly ugly and um, we don't need them anymore. You know? So we move on. Yeah. And we were barbarians in the nineties. We were just all barbarians. <laughs> like when yeah. I think of some of the stuff that got published and this is sort of, you know, as the internet is becoming the internet as we know it, 
but the kind of writing that people were doing, whether it was criticism or literature, whatever, there was just, there was a lot happening and you could see people sort of challenging boundaries and, and a lot of it needed to happen. Please don't misunderstand me. Like I, a lot of it was exciting. And then some of it was just trash. Yeah. Some of it was just bad. And you're like, wait a minute. And I have to say, like, you know, leaving Las Vegas, I remember that when that came out and we were all sort of talking about it and reading it and all I could think is, ooh, wow, okay, ouch. Every book has its time and has its place, right? And part of what I really appreciate, though, about what you've been doing through all of the books is that there's a timelessness. Like, honestly, I wouldn't have known necessarily. I was, I had a moment where I was thinking, well, you know, this is present day, whatever. And then I realized, oh, no you've got this pre-Great Recession. This is sort of 05, 06 when we're in the present day. But I like that timelessness. I like that idea that Bob is just sort of not a fixed point, but that he is who he is. Yeah. And he's he's very consistent, which I like. Yeah, yeah. And you can sort of see who he is as a tiny person and where like older Bob is going to come from. And I'm really dancing around some stuff that happens. But like many kids, he has done the running away thing. Yeah. Only because he's Bob, he, it, yeah, a lot happens. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to sit with the timelessness for a second. Cause even, even with the sisters brothers, like, yeah, it's 1850, whatever. And, you know, French exit, I sort of feel like could be any moment in sort of. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, mean, I remember when French exit was set to publish saying to my editor, Megan, this is just really an unfashionable book. This is not a book of its t- of its time. <laughs> and I meant that I sort of realized that, and it's a bit defeating to recognize that. But I, I, I think I knew from the start that I was never going to be one of these up to the minute sorts of people. I was never going to be uh, Mr. Hot Takes. You know, I'm just not. It's not who I am. And I think I live largely out of time. The way I, the way I live my life. Not that I'm living. I'm not like riding around on a penny farthing and smoking a pipe. I don't mean that. I just mean that I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not looking backward. I'm just sort of, I feel like I'm out of the game in a lot of ways. And it's not a negative feeling and I don't mind it. But I think that that feeling is reflected in the books. Ed Ruscha, I've talked about this before. Ed Ruscha, uh, Angelino artist that I spoke in one interview, he referenced uh, he's interested in his shelf life. It resonated with me in some way, I think above and beyond his intention and I just really thought, yeah, that's what I want. I want something. I want my work to be useful later, in the same way that I want it to be useful now. I'm not aiming for any sort of like contemporary commentary. If that occurs, it's happenstance, and I didn't mean to do it. I don't really have that much to say about the current moment, but I think I do have something to say about being a, a human, being alive. And so, whatever emotional information exists in my books, my hope is that it'll it'll resonate for you know, the next generation as well. And I don't know if that's how books, I don't know if books will be read to such a degree 50 years from now, who knows? But if they are, I hope that mine still makes sense emotionally. I think that's part of the beauty though of books is that we have the time and the space to sit. I mean, I'm horrified by the idea that there are people who are saying, well, it's the eighties, it's historical fiction. I'm like, (laughs) no, we can't. That's uh, no, we need at least a century. <laughs> like we can't, like, can you give me 50 years? Not something that just happened. But I think it's really important to recognize that novels really do lend themselves more to 
a moment in time and not necessarily our moment in time. And, and that's part of what I love about them. Like I, I love the idea that you were traveling back in time in Bob's life. Yeah. Well, a lot of people are finding that jarring or some people I should say are finding that jarring and just in terms of, wait, why are we, it's so far back. You know, you go from 70, some he's 72 or three and now he's a, like it's, it's a, it's a big stretch of time. But to me, it is more of the same information because it is the same, it's the same vessel. I think he, what it, a lot of people change. I think of myself as somebody who's changed and had many iterations. And I, when I look at myself when I was 21, like I don't recognize that person. I don't know what he was, why was he doing all those things that he was doing? <laughs> I just mean his points of view and his opinions. Yeah, yeah, and, I get it. And I think Bob is the opposite. I think Bob is solid. And so the emotional information of his being 11 is identical in importance and texture as him at 72, 73. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think it was that much of a jump. I really didn't. I just, I wanted the information. I wanted to know how we got, because Bob is skittish. He doesn't really know how to make friends. He doesn't really know what it means to be in love. I mean, Bob's mother is a little complicated. He could have turned out very different. I think it could have been a darker story for Bob. Um, were it not for the fact that he, there's a line about him sort of subscribing to minor amusements or he's not hard. He's easy to please in that his, his needs are easily met and he knows what he wants and he's modest. His ambitions are modest, right? So this is a recipe for somebody who will probably feel relatively comforted and pleased throughout the course of his life. And I think that that's a good model as a way to achieve peace in one's life is to sort of, I was thinking of my own reading, I suppose, when I was invoking sort of the sense of like, there's a line of a, a room filled with printed matter was a room is a room which needs nothing. It's a very pro book book generally, but I think that that's true. I cannot stop buying books and I will not get to the books that are in my home. Maybe half the books in my home I've read. I'm always reading. I'm never not reading. But why don't I stop buying books? And the answer is because I can't and because I don't want to. I'm shoring up for my ongoing quest, right? And the quest is endless or it ends when you die. So until that point, I will continue to seek out ways to spend my time wisely or out what a way that you know, I feel is wisely. And there's no wiser way to spend time for me outside of spending time with my loved ones than reading a book that makes me want to write, right? that inspires me to continue to write. And reading is an act of connection. There's so many people who think that reading is like a solitary, quiet, weird thing that you do in the corner. And I'm like, no, actually, it's a way of connecting to all of the stuff that is so much bigger than you or your life or anything else. You know, it is this active thing. It's not just kind of, you know, noodling through whatever. I mean, it's you're unscrolling a story in your own head. I mean, some people see books very cinematically as they read. I mean, everyone has a different experience of a book because they bring their own life to the book too, you know, yeah. has yeah. Thing. yeah. I, if I'm, if I feel lonely while I'm reading a book, it means that the book isn't working for me. If I'm reading a book that is working for me, loneliness is the furthest thing from my mind. So, and I think that that's something very, that Bob can very much relate to. And this is why he's occasionally being described as sort of a sad man. And I think that there's an aspect of sorrow to his life or his life experience, but he would maybe not be able to relate to that summation of his personality because he's had all these friendships you know with the authors that he's read and those are real friendships 
And it is a, it is a collaborative medium when I'm reading a book by an author who I think is really nailing it or really getting to something meaty. It's such a lively conversation. You know, it's not one way. It's a two way communication. And that's one of the miracles or magic tricks of the written word. I'm also one of those people who writes all over galleys. I don't necessarily write. It depends on what I'm reading for. I mean, if I'm reading just for pleasure, then chances are good things are not getting marked up. But if I'm reading for work or the show, I dog ear, I pencil, I sometimes I yell at the text. <laughs> you know, we all have opinions, but also sure. it's looking for sort of the spine of the story, right? What What's yeah. the thing? that is going to drive a conversation forward or or what's the thing where you're like hmm yeah i don't think we're going to talk about that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't like giving away spoilers so you know that's an easy sort of decision to make in the you know oh yeah we're super not talking about that because yeah. the joy of bob's life sort of unfurling in front of you and it was a gentle sort of ride through a world that I wouldn't necessarily be part of. Yeah, I mean, there's the book thing and everything else, but Bob's life is quite staid compared to mine, and a lot happens in Bob's life. Yeah. Do you miss him? Yeah, I mean, I still think of him a lot, and now I just I just got the proper copy, so I just got the you know hardcover copy of the mail. And there's an era after the composition of a long-form project where you're sort of wondering... You know, I'm no longer living in it, so I'm I'm outside of it, and I'm I'm looking in at this thing, and it's always a little bit mysterious to me. And this is why sometimes it's difficult to answer questions about the composition of a book. How did this book come to be written? And it's just sort of I, the answer is I don't really know, other than I I showed up every day and did what I thought was just and best for the characters. Um, but after you say goodbye to the characters, they definitely linger. It's not problematic. It's not, I'm not weeping at the loss yeah. of Bob. And right. but, but there is also, one, you know, wondering about him uh, in some way that maybe feels odd and that he's not a natural person, um, which I'm aware of. But, yeah, I... I you know a character has gotten under your skin when you sort of miss them, I guess is just the word. And I, I missed Eli's sisters. I, I miss Francis Price. I don't really miss the protagonist of Evolutions that much. <laughs> I do I, miss yeah. I do uh, I, I, I do miss Bob. And um, But there he is, you know. So anytime I want to see him, I can just go take a look. Yeah, and Evolutions, too, to me, is someone who's learning the craft. Like, yeah, it's gr- it's a great read. I I, I flew through no, it. But... Yeah, the spinning wheels just came off with that one. I, I and I think I swung pretty wildly this way and that. That's a book written by somebody who was not even considering that the book would ever be read. It was, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. And I, and and because I think that it's some of my better moments are in that book. It was surprising where the book went, and I was sort of witnessing myself becoming an artist in real time yeah i've been struggling to and occasionally sort of hitting a note here and there over the previous you know 10 years preceding the writing of evolutions i tried so many times in so many ways to make something that would be worth the time of the reader to spend 
to sit with it and read it. And it was just so touch and go. And, and, and so much of that work was just shabby and bad because it's, it's just it, what happens to all people. Uh, it's my apprenticeship, right? The 10,000 hours or whatever it's called. But ablutions, somehow the door was opened for me and I was allowed, I felt allowed to make quality work for the duration of the project. Whereas I tried any number of times to write a book and I'd get 50 pages in and recognize that it wasn't a book or even a short story. And I'm throw it away, start over again. But that feeling never arrived with ablutions. And it's a short book, but it was a book and I had written it and I couldn't believe it. And I was, was it the book, the, the defining book of my career? Like, of course, I don't, I don't think that it was. Not that maybe that, that book has been written yet or will be, but I, I just mean, I look at that book and I don't really recognize my voice. My voice wasn't fully there yet. I think I had something to say and I think it's stated with an amount of panache it's very much a first book. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it definitely is a first book, but I, I don't think panache can be underrated, to be honest, yeah. because I can look at all of the other books too and say, oh yeah, there is definitely some style and some verve here that not everyone can capture. And for me, it comes back to dialogue. It comes back to, you know, the snap in the language and the juxtaposition that we get sort of between the world and what your people are doing in the world and that sort of that collision. And that for me is the fun of reading you. So it's, it was, it was a little wild going back to evolutions being like, Oh, right. This yeah. is how all of this start. But you can see like, I, as someone who lives and dies by post-it notes, anyone who works with me can tell you, I may pull a post-it notes, computer right. monitor covered in post-it notes because I have a very large laptop. All right. I knew this was going to happen. We've bumped up against time. So I'm just going to say that's a really good, good place for us to wrap up. Patrick DeWitt, thank you so much. The Librarianist is out now. If you haven't read Sisters Brothers yet, yeah, or French Exit or Evolutions or Under Major Damo Minor. Well, those are available too, but maybe you should just spend a summer with Patrick. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Librarianist. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I am joined by two fantastic book buddies who are going to take the reins, Jamie and Mary. Jamie, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Okay, Mark. Uh, I am a Patrick DeWitt fan. I think he has such a unique voice. I almost had a hard time coming up with a single title to recommend. All of his books are so different, but as I was looking at The Librarianist, I started thinking about other books where there's a seemingly inconsequential person who's at the center of a much larger narrative. And I was reminded of um, The Fifth Business by his fellow Canadian, Robertson Davis. This is the first book in a trilogy, the Deptford Trilogy. The last time I read this book was probably before Patrick DeWitt even began writing books. It was certainly written before he was born. So it's from a different era, but it's a hugely influential novel and it's a fun read despite being pretty hefty. It's got some very smart humor inside. The idea behind the book is that the main character, Dunstan Ramsey, or we'll call him Dunny, he's our narrator, uh, he himself is fifth business, which is a theater term that refers to a character who plays a significant but very much supporting role in the drama, a little bit like Bob Comet. And the difference I think is that Bob doesn't recognize his impact while Dunstan absolutely believes he is the key 
to all these big consequences and is trying to convince others of his significance. And so to do that, he writes a letter. He's a teacher at a college and they write him up in the school's paper and he takes issue with the description of him as a sort of boring history teacher who's never lived or loved or hated anyone or gone on any adventures outside the classroom. He has not, in fact, led a dull history teacher's life. And this novel is the letter he writes to the headmaster to complain. And in it, he reveals this incredible life story that kicks off that trilogy. So he starts with the inciting incident, the incident, the event that he believes is responsible for everything that's going to come after in his life and in the lives of everyone at the scene. And it's him as a young boy in Canada playing in the snow with his buddy, Percy. A young couple approaches them. Percy makes a snowball, aims it at the young couple, and Dunny steps in to save them from being hit by the snowball. Only he doesn't step far enough, and the snowball hits the woman in the head, knocking her to the ground. Uh, she begins screaming. Ultimately, she goes into early labor, and they never see Percy at the scene. They never see him throw the snowball. So in their mind, this couple's mind, it's Dunstan who has caused this event and um, to happen. And he feels hugely guilty and spends much of his childhood trying to make up for that. And it's a feeling that he thinks informs all of the choices that he makes later on in his life. Turns out, though, that the feelings that he has in that moment and about how its significance and his role in it are not at all what the other people in the scene believe. Um, and so he sees himself as a key player when really he's fifth business. This is just the setup. This is a very complex and rewarding story that is marvelous and magical and full of the unexplained. We get to follow Dunstan to foreign lands where he studies saints and miracles and we follow him to battlefields and finally to a stage where he begins to work on a biography of a magician he admires named Magnus Isengrim. And his time spent with Isengrim's troupe features some of the most memorable characters I've ever encountered in literature. They have stuck with me for decades. History unfolds like a gorgeous story in this book, and it really, he does a great job of blending the past and the present with the factual and the mythological and the horrifying and the hilarious. And even if his role in it is small, uh, it does make for a truly great tale that I don't want to spoil. So that is uh, The Fifth Business, uh, the first book in the Deptford Trilogy by Robertson Davis, uh, which sets firmly in my Books Everyone Should Read list. Oh, fantastic. I'm adding it to my list today. It gives me a little bit of a John Irving kind of vibe, definitely a DeWitt kind of feel. So fantastic choice as usual. Mary, what do you have for us today? My pick is The Last Chance Library by Freya Simpson. I was looking at my TBR, what I possibly could pick for the librarianess, and I wanted to go 180 opposite of it. This is a light novel. It is about a librarian called June Jones who lives in the English village of Chalcott. Um, she has a cat named Alan Bennett. And June is grieving her mother's death, and she's basically hiding in the stacks, reading War and Peace and making up stories about her patrons based on what they check out from her. June has to come out of the stacks when uh, she finds out that her branch of the library is being threatened with closing. And you meet all these characters along the way who encourage her and say, you are the person who needs to speak for the books. And she is very shy and very inside her head and in her grief, and she refuses. And we meet old loves and old friends, and we were like, you're the person who needs to speak for the books. And to save the books, she has to come out of the books. So that's this is her journey of coming out of the books and learning how to use her voice. 
And that is The Last Chance Library by Freya Stephenson. That's a super charming title. Um, I am always a sucker for anything that has to do with books or libraries as sort of a a thread throughout. And that Mm -hmm. one was a really cute one. So nice choice. Thank you both uh, for your picks. Uh, But that's all we have for now. So thanks for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Jamie, Mary, where can we find you? I'm Jamie. You can follow me at my home store at BN Leewood KS. I'm Mary. You can follow me at my store at BN Beaumont, Texas. PX. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.